This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. His particular disorder, KIF-1A, when we got diagnosed, it was like 200 people worldwide. It's neurodegenerative because it gets worse over time. I noticed that a lot of kids around the age of 12, that's when they would start getting worse. So one of the reasons why I left is I was like, well, if you're telling me it's going to get worse over time, we don't have time for the natural progression. You know, go to school, find a spouse, get married, have kids, then vacation. We don't have time for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go the other way. We're going to start vacationing, living our life to the fullest. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered, free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens, free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. Welcome to this episode of the Blacksit Global podcast. This is an episode that many listeners have been asking for, for a variety of reasons. And for that, I'm excited to welcome my next guest. Charisma Freeman is living her dream life through passive real estate investing. You know how we love that money. And she's also the founder of Charismatic Investors and Charisma Cares Travels the World. Her portfolio consists of single family and multifamily properties, as well as syndications. You know, we're going to get into that. But what is also remarkable about her journey is that she is a single mother traveling the world with her son who has a rare neurodegenerative disorder and specializes in helping women travel with disabilities, special needs, and single parenthood. Welcome to Blacksit Global Charisma. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about your backstory. Like, where'd you grow up? And if travel was something that you always did, or is this like a new thing? Okay, I'm from New York, but I grew up in Atlanta on the South Side in College Park. That's where I grew up during that era when, you know, Ludacris was coming out. And- You know, all of that. We all were in the same neighborhood, basically. I was just younger. So I grew up there. My mom took me on, I guess, my first cruise when I was 16. Prior to that, I had been traveling since I was four because my mom lived in Atlanta and my dad still lived in New York. So my first flight was four years old, solo flight. That was back when Delta gave you wings. You got a coloring book. You got food, like real 
real food. And I would go at least once a year for a few months and spend time with my family up there. What's funny is that my grandmother is Panamanian. So my family is Panamanian and Costa Rican. My mom is the first um, American on that side of the family. And my grandmother was just this traveling person. Like if I wasn't flying back and forth, I was on the Greyhound bus going, you know, because when she first came, she went to New York. Then she was in uh, South Carolina, North Carolina. She was in Louisiana and New Orleans. So, you know, I would be with grandma, be with my mom, I'd be with my dad. So I think part of me, it was always ingrained to travel. And then when I had my own kids, it was the same thing. We were always going somewhere. Like my daughter has been many, many places. My daughter, she's older. She's 19. She ain't traveling with me like that. She tried for two months. She was like, this travel life isn't for me. She wanted it to be a vacation. And I'm like, no, girl, we we live here. We not we can't be skydiving and scuba diving every every day because this is where we live. So she's like, okay, I'll come for vacation. We've always done travel, you know, a few days, a week or two. You know, we were the people that we don't really celebrate Thanksgiving like everybody does. We found that to be boring. So almost every year we'd be on a cruise for Thanksgiving. Whatever that cruise ship made us (laughs) is what we ate. Like we are not your typical, you know, we have Thanksgiving sometimes, but typically we like, okay, where where the discounts at? Who... Who's having to sail on the cruises? So I feel like that travel bug was ingrained in me with my family. So my background is a registered nurse. Um, I was, I graduated at 2021 as an RN. At that time, I had a daughter. My daughter went through nursing school with me. It was basically, let's read this human anatomy book. So, like, we were sitting there, we, we need a bedtime story. Mommy. Yeah, right? So, light reading, of course. Right. <laughs> Mommy has a test in the morning, so let's read about reproduction today. After that, I was working in the field. I was in ICU, oncology, you know, the typical stuff. And I remember one day, my daughter saying to me, and she was maybe like, four or five. And she was like, mommy, you go to work when it's dark and you come home when it's dark. Because, you know, we work 12 hour shifts in the hospital. The five-year-old had no idea how I felt about that. And I pivoted. I was like, okay, I can't do this. Because even though I was only working three or four days a week, that was making a bigger difference because she was with the sitter. You know, she was the first one there and the last one to leave. I pivoted and I went into more traditional hours, um, Monday through Friday, nine to When my son was born and I found out he had special needs, I had to change it because I needed to work less time and I needed to make more money. I had always wanted to go back to school and be a nurse practitioner. But when I was married, my ex-husband just wasn't very supportive of me doing that. Once I was like, I'm filing for divorce, it didn't really matter what he, (laughs) whether he was supportive or not. So I literally, that January, I said, I wanted a divorce February I was in school to become an MP huge congrats because having your daughter pursuing your RN and getting married having your child with special needs and also knowing like hey you know what there are things that are happening that we need to grow we need to grow as a family we need to grow financially and then when that other partner isn't on the same page and there's I'm imagining 
other issues that contribute to it, you're like, you know what? Time to cut the losses. Got to keep it moving. In the special needs world with anyone that has a child with special needs, what's funny is that a lot of those marriages don't make it. I remember going to one of my son's doctors very early on when we were trying to figure out what was wrong with him. The first time it was my husband and I, the second time I was by myself and I just told her, I was like, I'm here by myself. She was like, that's typical. About 60 to 70% of the time people get divorced because not only do you have marriage to worry about and maybe whatever else is going on, but now you have this unknown. You have brought a child in. The child has a disability, special needs. You, you know, you think totally different. It kind of throws this wrench into the marriage. So what you find is that a lot of times they become single parents. They get divorced. Of course, most of the time it's the moms that take over. Occasionally it's the dads. And when they do, I'm like, kudos <laughs> to you. But a lot of times it's the moms that take over. And now not only are you doing single parenthood, because I was a single parent with my daughter. Her dad was involved, but I was a single parent. And my mom always said, you can put one on your hip and go about your business. So, you know, I would take her and we'd be gone. We we like two peas in the pod. We would do, you know, mommy and me dates. We, you know, we doing whatever. But once you have another child or you have a child with special needs or a disability, like my son, where nobody knew what was wrong with him. First, it was autism. Then it was cerebral palsy. He didn't get the KIF-1A diagnosis until he was like nine years old. My ex-husband at the time was like, you just making stuff up. Ain't nothing wrong with him. And then it was a doctor. He was like, oh, he's just slow. He's a boy. And I'm like, you know, I'm a medical professional and I am a mother. Like I've had a child. I know this is not the natural progression. So you think you have a relationship. Like you said, you may already have relationship issues, you know, during pregnancy, things happen. And then you throw in the wrench of a child with a disability where he's siding with these doctors that's like, he's fine. And I'm like, no, I need to figure out what's wrong with my child. So, you know, when you put all of that into one pot, you know, marriage itself is hard. People, all they want to talk about is the wedding. But after the wedding, y'all still got to live together. <laughs> but it was like the marriage. That's when it gets started. Y'all think y'all, because y'all spent $20,000, y'all did something. Uh-uh, y'all should have saved some that money for some counseling. Counseling or investing in the market, you have better returns. Right, right. So my ex-husband just was not built for a child with special needs and disabilities. You know, you dealing with the day-to-day in life. Now I've taken off of work. I can't, you know, we had all these doctor's appointments. I can't go back. You know, me being a nurse at the time, of course I made more money. So there were a lot of, it was, you know, it was a lot of things that you had to take into account. When I chose to end the relationship, I was like, like I said, I got to make more money in less time. So I had always wanted to be a nurse practitioner, went on to nurse practitioner school. You know, that was about two years because that's a master's. I would work part time PRN and I'm a saver. Like my mom says, you you saved it, saving it for a whole tsunami. This is not a rainy day. <laughs> So, you know, and since I had already been a saver, I could actually work off of working part time. I'm already used to working with a smaller amount. And of course, my smaller amount as an NP or RN may be larger than some, right? When I went from being an RN to NP, I didn't increase my stuff. 
you know, how some people like, let me get a bigger house and let me get more cars. I remember I had a friend. She was like, girl, you're a nurse practitioner. Why are you still riding that Hyundai Santa Fe? I like my Hyundai Santa Fe that's almost paid off. Thank you very much. You know, I never increased my bills. We, I went to MP school. That's when I started doing like Hulu and Netflix before everybody else was cutting that cable. Mine was cut. So I graduated because this had been a dream of mine ever since I was younger. Like I had always wanted to be a doctor. Then I had decided I wanted to be an MP. Graduated from MP school, did it for a year. And I was like, I don't like this. I did all of this and I was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. And that's when I kind of started getting that thought of it's got to be something else. And of course, everybody's around me like, what are you talking about? You're making hella money. You're traveling. You're doing whatever you want to do. People felt like I had this dream job. And what did I have to complain about? But I still felt like something was missing. One of my goals that I had had in life was to do real estate. I had actually purchased my first house with the idea that I would later rent it out. Right before the pandemic, maybe in October, I rented out that particular house and purchased another house. And I purchased that house with the thought of actually renting that out as well. That was my first rental property. COVID hit and I was like, oh, I definitely don't want to do this job anymore because you you all have now taken me from, I was going out in the field, seeing patients in geriatrics. And, you know, I like that, but I didn't feel like I have this thing where I have to feel like I'm helping people. And I just kind of felt like it was just a rinse and repeat all the time. People would say I would help them, but I personally didn't feel like I was. So I started doing more in the real estate business, started learning more, investing in like syndications and some JV joint venture partnerships. When they were sending stipend money, my money was being invested. I don't know what everybody else was doing, but that money went to an apartment building in uh, Montgomery, Alabama. (laughs) So I was We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. That is so smart. You put a lot of time, effort, energy, and money into becoming, you know, a healthcare professional. And then realizing, hey, when you got there, right, expectation and reality were two different things. And I love that because so many times people feel like, oh, I've done this thing for so long, I can't pivot. You were able to beautifully make that switch because you're like, you know what, it's okay to be multi-passionate, to have other interests, to seek other opportunities. And so just having that ability to say, you know what, I'm going to invest in this property and then this property and then get into, and I would love for you to give an explanation about syndications. I'm curious, not only did you have that desire to pursue real estate, how did you learn all the things that you did? I'm assuming like it's like a ladder, you're building on that knowledge base. So 
what were the steps that you did to increase that? Because I had already knew I wanted to get into real estate, I actually started before COVID, I started going to more real estate meetings. I started networking. So by the time that everything shut down with COVID, I was already in the network. You know, I already knew people, people knew me. I was learning different areas because there's so many different things you can go into. You can do wholesaling, you can do fix and flips, rentals, house hacking, syndications, which they don't talk about a lot. There's so many things you can go into. So I had already started going to classes, courses, networking. I had started reading and my, I think my real estate ideas came with everybody else's rich dad, poor dad. You know, some of us read that book and didn't think about it again. I read that book and that stayed on my mind for at least a decade. So it was always something I wanted to do. Again, when I was married, I wanted to buy this building and do adult living facility. And of course, my ex-husband, and not to say that he was a bad person, but I think that, you know, I have all of these dreams up here and your average person, your average working person is kind of status quo. So I'm not like trying to throw them under the bus, but it's just like status quo. You work, you make money, you take the vacation you're given and you keep quiet. And I was kind of like, but I want to do this, this, this and this. (laughs) So that was really the difference. So, you know, there were things I, you know, I look back, I could have invested in and I just didn't. But there was nobody to stop me at this point. You know, I had money in the bank. And I was getting the education. You know, I was just surrounding myself by the different individuals that were as well. Did I have things that didn't go as planned? Yes. In real estate and in the stock market. I have to look at my stocks right now and I'm like, oh, Lord, let me not look no more for the next year. I'm not going to say it's been all roses and, you know, I have not lost money, but I I do have some ventures that kind of sit there that I'm like, okay, what are we going to do? How can we make this make sense? And I think some of it has been lack of education, even going to these classes and these courses and doing all of this, you don't know what you don't know, right? So there was some things that now I'm like, Charisma, you you didn't think that through? Like, but you don't know what you don't know, you know? So you're looking at these people and their mentors and they're helping and they're supposed to be shaping. And sometimes you really got to decide, are they actually for you or are they for themselves, you know? And I think that's that's any business. That's how I love this Black sit, Black America is Stephanie, is Rashida, you know, all of these different women, you know, Picky Girl Travels, all of these women that's showing you, okay, there's a better way. And then there's women out here for you. I stumbled upon the syndications. As many courses as I've been to, as many speakers I've heard, all of those different things. I had not heard about syndications. I tell people syndications is the it's the best thing since sliced bread. I'm telling y'all, it is what the rich people are keeping and they are hiding from us. It is syndications is really the only passive real estate investing. I do other things. You know, I have my rentals. I have uh, joint ventures. But syndications is the only thing that's 100 percent passive. You asked me about syndications. Basically, what that is, is you take, let's say, an apartment building. 
most of us can't afford to go and buy a million dollar apartment building. Even if we just have to put down the 10%, we can't necessarily do that. However, basically with the syndication, two individuals or two or more businesses, they come together, they put an offer in on this apartment building, and then they have investors that invest to put down that down payment. And the investors basically buy a slice of this venture. So they now own a percentage of this apartment building. You can't come and collect your percentage, of course, your apartments, but you own a percentage of this. The thing with syndications is they're doing all of the work. They do all the work, all the background. They go over all of that. They present you with what they have to offer. They present you with the numbers. And then you decide if you want to invest in this. This could be uh, from 10,000, 20, 50 and up, you know, and people invest in it with their own money. But a lot of people, that's what they're doing with like their 401ks and their IRAs. They can use that. They invest in syndications and they make the money. So the interest that's paid is paid back to them. The money that they accrue from it is paid to them. Most of the time, you're at least doubling your money, give or take. And it may be most holds, I would say, are about three to seven years. Most of mine are about five. There are some that's 10. I don't like to have my money tied up for 10 years. However, if you're using your 401k or something like that, it may not be a big deal to do 10 years. It's like you put your money in and then you collect your dividends. They give you an update, maybe quarterly, you know, just depending on what's going on. And they let you know how your money is going to be shelled back out to you on what schedule, when you can expect what, and all of that money, you get that money back over time. So normally those, let's say it's five years, the first four years, you'll receive the first 50%. And then on the sale or the refinance of the property, you receive the other 50%. So that's the syndication. <laughs> Thank you for explaining it and breaking it down. A lot of people are looking at ways, and I know Exodus Summit was all focused on move abroad money. People are looking at ways in which they can shore up their funds. And yes, part of that is saving, but really the multiplier effect is investing, whether that's investing in real estate, investing in the stock market, investing in different types of real estate, like you mentioned, syndications, REITs, et cetera, being able to identify not only what feels right for you, but part of feeling what's right is what's my payback period? What's my risk tolerance? Things like that. What are my resources? Can I pull from a 401k? Can I do a mixture of cash? And is there a partner I can go into? And so the takeaway here is that there are a plethora of opportunities. And it sounds like you've taken advantage of the ones that work right for you and your lifestyle. I mean, there's things like fix and flips, you know, on HGTV where they would show that my anxiety level is too high for that. You know, something go wrong and now I can't sleep at night. You know, it's a lot going on there. You need to be present. So I, I do things where I don't have to be present. With my real estate, I automate everything. Like I have a class that teach people how to find that tenant and how to automate that whole process. I do the syndications. My first syndication I invested from, I was in Panama, not Panama City, Florida, but Panama City, Panama. Like, Because <laughs> people be like, Florida? No, 
I was in Panama. I was on, on the beach at, I think it was Isla Mujeres. And I was like, okay, let me, I can go ahead and wire you these funds and we can go ahead and get it started. That's what I do. I do things that are passive. But the issue with syndications is I've never been able to find anyone or anything that truly tells you how to evaluate a syndication. And that's the thing. When they present it to you, you need to know what that information means. Is that something that you want to do? Is that something that you're looking to pursue? Because like everything else, no two things are created equally. You may be okay with making double your money in five years. You know, if they're holding for 10 years, you may want to make sure they're going to triple your money and you're going to get, you know, certain returns and you set up a criteria. Actually, because of the Exodus Summit, I created a self-paced syndications course (laughs) to teach you how to evaluate because they were emailing me like, but where's the course at? And I was like, yeah, we're all about these courses. Right. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, give us the information, but give us the blueprint. <laughs> right. So I did finally get that done. I created that course. And this is all about evaluating the syndication because a lot of what I found, they're teaching you how to create a syndication. Everybody doesn't want to create their own syndication. It's something that I'm actually working with my team and doing, but most people, that's not what they're looking to do. They just want to go ahead and invest. So this teaches you specifically how to evaluate a syndication and create your own criteria and basically don't invest with the wrong people. You, If you do your due diligence, then you definitely decrease your risk. Any investment, there isn't a risk-free investment. Everything comes with some level of risk, but it goes back to what we talked about. It's understanding what your risk tolerance is, how much you're willing to lose, not just focusing on the potential upside. It's just like, how much can you withstand losing on the downside? Also that payback period, how long can you be without this money? And are you comfortable where you want to be in life? And, you know, saying, okay, I might be getting, you know, third here, third there. Where will you be in that stage of life? Does that work for your long-term goals? I love how you have crafted a life that you love. And, you know, I guess it's a good time to like segue to the life that you love because we're having this conversation. I am in New Jersey on a cloudy, rainy day and you are in Mexico City. Yes. <laughs> and nope, no clouds, just sun. <laughs> so let's talk about Mexico City and how you've been settling in there. And, you know, before we hit record on our conversation, you were talking about some opportunities. So let's take it there. With my investments, I have what I consider long-term and short-term. So syndications, I consider more a little bit more longer-term. It's five years. So I have to invest in something that's short-term. So whether that is my rental properties, Airbnbs, things of that nature, I still need my monthly pay. I do still work as a nurse practitioner, but at this point, I actually work in psychiatry. I love psychiatry. I feel like I'm helping people. A lot of the people that come to me are Black women because they're always like, there's no Black women and I don't trust these people. (laughs) They will straight tell me that. It's true. It's true. I mean, there's a shortage of competent healthcare professionals, especially in mental health spaces. And we're not telling our stuff to everybody. Think about going to the salon. Your hairstylist, especially if it's somebody you went to routinely, was almost like a therapist too, or the barbershop, right? Mm -hmm. So we have come up with that level of safety and comfort with being with someone who looks like us. 
And then many times when we're seeking help from different health professionals, if they're not reflected and can't connect, the things that make us who we are, we second guess or they question or they dismiss. And that just breeds mistrust. So it's awesome that you have found like your element in this field. Yeah, so I only do one or two days a week, but I feel like that, you know, kind of is some of my passion. So I do still do that as well. I said that to segue into Mexico City because I ended up coming to Mexico City because my son, my son's birthday is in October and I wanted to come for Dia de Muertos, Day of the Dead. I had seen where this world school, they were doing some world schooling thing, coming to Dia de Muertos and it was like $3,000 seven or eight days. And I was like, $3,000. Can I just do a whole month and do a trip to Mexico City? So I started looking and I was like, yeah, about three, four grand. If I'm going to spend 3000 I could do a whole trip and probably spend less money. So I was like, okay, let's go. We're going for a month. So we came down here. It was amazing. Dia de Muertos. We had a great time. And while I was down here, I started talking to my Airbnb owner, right? And she was saying how she just got here in February and she's up to five Airbnbs. So y'all know the investor in me. I'm not an Airbnb person. I've done it. It was too much of my time. I can't even say it's a lot of work, but people always bothering you. I don't like to be bothered. But when you tell me you got five of them and you making at least 700 on each one a month and you're not doing any work, I'm like, ding, ding, ding. So we came here for a month to enjoy Mexico City and Day of the Dead. But at this point, we staying for a month because that profit margin is sounding pretty good. And, you know, I got to find out about that because I'm all about making some money. In the States, Atlanta and all of that, they're cutting down on the Airbnbs. You know, you can't really do a rental. You got to buy the property. You know, it's a lot that goes on in it. Whereas here, you can rent it out for a year and you can try to Airbnb it. You can get the people on the ground, the boots on the ground here. I'm not a math whiz, but five properties, at least 700 a month. Oh, you are killing it. Yes. We'll be here for another month. (laughs) (laughs) I already started looking at properties, found out estimates to get them furnished. So I'm going to get this first one, see how this goes. We're actually going to go stay in it while I get it together. If it works, I'm going to rinse and repeat. And we're going to ride this till the wheels fall off. Wow. I love that. Oh, my goodness. You really are living the life of your dreams. <laughs> when I do these calculations, I'm like, ooh. I talk, like, oh, the math is mathing. Okay. <laughs> I talked to a friend of mine, you know, that we've done some things together. And I said, would you do this? He was like, you know what? I would get in while the getting in is good. If this if this ends up in eight months where it doesn't work, you have made the money plus more. So if in eight months this thing goes boom, he was like, a lot of times we wait too long to get in. He has this quote that he always tells me, he's like, scared money don't make money. I just said that to one of my girlfriends this morning about something completely unrelated, but it's true, especially as Black people. For many of us, we might be like the first 
generation to have a significant amount of income versus our parents and maybe grandparents. There's this tension between lifestyle creep versus playing it safe financially. And so there's this underlying tension. It creates this unnecessary pause where it's like, oh, I have to have so much information or so much degree of certainty before I do this thing, whatever that scary thing is. And what happens is while you're trying to assess or you're like, you know what, this is too much and you kind of walk away, guess what? Missed opportunities, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because that's scared money, right? And, And like I said, it's just understanding that there's levels of complexity as to why we often do that. But I think it is conversations like this and others that kind of help demystify like, okay, you know what? You can be a single parent. You can be a single parent that has a child with special needs and still pursue your life's dreams. You can still invest or move abroad and both, right? All of the above. That's what I love about your journey and your story is that for many of us, it takes seeing or hearing someone do the thing that you want to do to say, oh, you know what? I can see myself doing this. I can do it too. And the thing is, it's not like I don't get scared. I will call my mom in a heartbeat be like, Mom, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, Lord, I think I'm losing my mind. You got to have your cheerleader. My mom is so my cheerleader. I can call her if I feel like, okay, am I doing this right? Am I doing this wrong? And it's not necessarily that she can advise me on every situation, but she can be that listening ear and she can guide me through that process. Because the thing is that I can't tell you any investment where there's not a risk that you will lose something or all of it. You know, even before the stock market crash, I call myself day trading. I think I got a little ADHD. Y'all know how much money I lost day trading? I was like, this is for the bars. I ain't doing this <laughs> But for some people, that is their thing. Like you have to find your niche. For me, I have found that it's real estate. I like doing real estate. It takes a bit more, a bit larger sum of money. Honestly, there's things that you can cut out. There were people in my real estate meeting, they were making big money, but to make that extra money, They may have started driving for Uber. For some reason, Uber driving makes a lot of money. Like just based off of what I've been told, they can make good money, you know? So it just depends on how much you want it. You could take out a loan. There are different things that you can do to invest in it. At least 70% of our country's worth is based off of real estate. So if you're looking at something that's kind of proven and tried, it's out there. Now you will read all the books go to all the classes, attend all the courses you want to. But until you pull a trigger and do something, it it is what it is. That's why I tell people, you know, the students in my class, first thing I start with is mindset because y'all can take this course But if you don't do anything with it, you can't come back to me and say, well, Charisma, I didn't get any property because of you. No, no, no. In this boot camp, I gave you every step you needed. You just didn't pull the trigger. I'm in Mexico City. I I said, I'm going to go ahead and pull this trigger and see what it does. But I'm willing to take that risk because otherwise my money's just sitting in the bank with that, what, 2 to 3% interest rate. And that's considered high. I'm technically making money, but I'm losing money because our money isn't worth as much as it was before. So actually, 
these little two and three percent, three points, one, two, you know, I'm still losing money with my money in this, in this bank. So I need to do something. I need to see what works. If I see this works, I'm going to be visiting Mexico City a little bit more. You know, I may come every few months, you know, but I'm going to have somebody that's here that's managing my properties, making those connections, seeing what needs to be done. I went to a real estate meeting the other day. It was, they were like, we're having a real estate meeting. Well, guess who's going to be here? Let me get this nanny here. Oh, I don't play. I, I'm going to make some money. If I don't know about it, I will find out. You are in Mexico City and you are still doing the damn thing, right? You're like, look, okay, real estate meeting, I'm there. I'm going to figure out how to make it happen, how to make it work. You've talked about ventures and also the due diligence and the lessons that you've learned. Not everything has always panned out, but I love that you recognize that it's not something that's a complete deal breaker that you have to walk away. In every lesson, right, there's an L. You take the lesson and then you move on and you learn either how to do it differently or how to do it better. As you started to figure out now this investment pursuits in Mexico City, how has your son adjusted to being in Mexico City? Girl, my son is so easygoing. I mean, he's really that kid that if he he's up under me, he's happy. Like someone told me that before when I, it may have been it was one of my family members. They said he don't care where you go as long as you're there. You know, and that's really what it is. It's just like we're two peas in a pod together. There's a couple of things. He it's got to have good food. If they don't have good food, he don't want to be here. That's very important to him. I always try to find a place where I can get a nanny or a sitter. I try to do that before I get there, especially having a child with special needs. You do need to have some kind of break. Um, in between there, you can possibly just send yourself crazy. I do try to find someone and locally, normally the rates are a lot less expensive than in the States. And most cultures, they do a lot of nanny housekeeping. You know what I mean? Whereas in the States, we do everything ourselves. Most of the time, once you leave the States, everybody got a nanny and a housekeeper. Like you don't. They sure do. I mean, and look, the United States did when they didn't have to pay for it that part. And it's not like, oh, your high earners have it. No, no, no. Your regular everyday people have nannies and housekeepers. You know what we now call the soft life. They've been living this life. Y'all just didn't know. Like we had no idea. We've been living the hard life. Oh, look, work 40, 50, 60 hours. Your health insurance is tied to your employment. It's like, oh, 401k, who? Yeah, all right. It's kind of like you come here and life is just easier. We did Dominican Republic for six months. We live right there on the beach, $900 a month. We had our own pool. You know, my son would go to the pool. He'd go to the beach. we walk up the street. He would know. He knew how to order himself. Me gusta hamburguesa con queso, con papas fritas. And I'm like, well, what do you want to drink? Bebida gusta lemonada, por favor. Like, if my son can say nothing else that is so amazing good oh my gosh that is awesome it's a different lifestyle and he loves it and what's interesting is after leaving for about maybe six to nine months and coming back to see his doctors his particular disorder kif1a when we got diagnosed it was like 200 people worldwide now i think we're almost at 400 if not so it's very few 
people here. It's neurodegenerative because it gets worse over time. Whereas when we were diagnosed with cerebral palsy, they said, well, the good thing is it doesn't get worse over time. I heard that so many times. Then you come back and tell me, oh yeah, this one gets worse over time. I noticed that a lot of kids around the age of 12, that's when they would start getting worse. So one of the reasons why I left is I was like, well, if you're telling me it's going to get worse over time, we don't have time for the natural progression. You know, go to school, find a spouse, get married, have kids, then vacation. We don't have time for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go the other way. We're going to start vacationing, living our life to the fullest, doing what we do. And that's what I started doing. We've just completed our full year. When we first left, it was in the summertime, 2021. Went back to see his doctors and he has not declined at all. He has actually gotten stronger. So whereas, yeah, they were telling us, oh, you're going to get, you know, he gets worse and things decline. He has gotten stronger. We walk more. We eat better. He swims a lot. I picked up a physical therapist right there in Dominican Republic. It was like $9 a visit. So we did it. <laughs> when I started to see that it seemed like he was declining a little bit, I went, took him to physical therapy. We went like three, four days a week for a month and we were good to go. It's one of those things I just make it happen. And I was so scared that I was going to get back and they were going to say he's declining because I'm homeschooling. I'm not no homeschooling mama. Never saw myself doing that. I'm homeschooling. We're out and about. We are doing absolutely everything that basically society tells us not to do, right? Especially with a child with special needs. So to get back and to find out that he's really thriving is actually like, wow. He really does love it. He misses family sometimes. So I think that we are going to be those people that we do come back every few months. And then when we come back, we stay for a couple of months. But the lovely technology, you know, he'll FaceTime whoever, talk to them. And then he's normally good for like a month or two. He's not missing you too long. It's a life well lived and it's a life well thought out. It's recognizing what his abilities are and where the opportunities are. And that's, I think, my biggest takeaway from this conversation is seeking opportunities and crafting your life, not letting what society has defined as where you should be or how big your life is. You can be bold. You can think audaciously. You can recognize that, yes, there are certain challenges and life challenges, but there are also a plethora of opportunities that lie in that same space. Just hearing how your son is doing so well, he's feeding off of you. He's feeding off of your energy. He's feeding off of your enthusiasm and zest for life. And that's enabling him to grow and to thrive. And I guess when I actually step back and look at it, like how you're saying it and how other people say it, because I'm here, I'm here every day and I'm seeing the day to day. But when I step back and I'm like, he's actually doing really well. When I went back to Atlanta, we were waiting on one appointment and I was talking to my mom and I said, am I doing the right thing? Traveling around, going to these different places, you know, should I be stationary here with him in school? And because one of the doctors we saw, 
they were saying, oh, well, you know, this seems like this was very hard on you. It seems like it would just be better for you to put them back in school. And I'm like, well, I ain't tell you this was hard on me. It ain't no harder than any other parents, in my opinion. Because, <laughs> you know, not many parents homeschool children with special needs. But I have found that in my research, the ones that did, their children were doing really, really well. You know, with her saying that, you know, I started questioning myself and I asked my mom and my mom was like, I wouldn't want no children in this school right now. She said, I don't know what I would do. She was like, I would be so paranoid to send my children to school. There's so much going on. You know how some kids can call you. He can't necessarily call you. She was like, I think that you're doing the best thing. It's not very many people in this world that have that opportunity. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Because if I put him back in school and something happened, I just would never forgive myself. Right now, we just travel around. We don't have a home base, but maybe one day we'll have a home base and he may go to school internationally. International schools seem a whole lot safer. Tell me about it. The school system here has declined. I mean, as you know, either from the violence that occurs, the degradation of the education, the influences, and even, you know, obviously education has become even more politicized. What that does, especially with your story, is gives people an opportunity to say, you know what, is this really working? Should we still be buying into this? Is there another way? And maybe the pandemic and the lockdown and quarantine opened up, even though, you know, it was kind of thrust on us, was a wake up call in some respects or just a shake up. In that is the examination of, is this really the best opportunity because if we're feeling the effects of everything that's going on in society or microaggressions in the workplace or limiting opportunities, what does that look like for our students, our children who are going to school and they are being either you know, taught by people who may not have their best interests at heart or whatever that thing is and knowing that, hey, You know what? Being in an environment with homeschooling, world schooling, unschooling can craft education and give experiences to your child that works for where that child is and what they're interested in. And then seeing that blossom and take effect. You know, my daughter, she's a senior. And every day I hear about she doesn't like school. She doesn't like school. And I'm like trying to get her to the finish line. What that does for me is like, wow, you know what? There was a missed opportunity there. I was definitely seeing there was a difference in their education and went to great schools, right? Compared to a lot of people, but still there is a lot that's missing there. And I think what society, at least in the States does, it keeps you on that hamster wheel all the time that you don't fully pay attention as much as you should to all the other things that aren't going well. I would agree because my daughter, she graduated in 2021. You know, I worry a lot about that particular class from a psychological perspective. What a lot of people don't realize is that they are the only class in the pandemic that missed junior and senior year. And when you look back on your high school experience, those were your two best years. So the class before her, they at least had junior year. The class after her had senior year. My daughter was in band. She did the drums. She had 20 college 
acceptance letters. She had thousands, tens of thousands in money that was given to her. And those two years, I feel like, and I hope she don't get mad at me for uh, talking about this, but I feel like those two years really threw a wrench into her plans. They weren't really teaching. She didn't feel like she was equipped. She didn't feel like she really knew things. I mean, it was one thing to homeschool a second or third grader. I can't necessarily homeschool an 11 or 12th grader. First of all, I don't even know how y'all do y'all math. What y'all doing? Like, I I can't even help you because what? You add that in, the fact that the schools weren't really teaching, the teachers, you know, were going through a lot. It was just things that were not done correctly for these children. So I look at my daughter, you know, it's like you miss out on a prominent time in your life. And she's so nonchalant where she's just like, it's okay. And I'm like, but it's not, but I can't fix it. Right. Like I couldn't stop the pandemic. You know, I couldn't fix it. So those friends and those relationships that you have, you know, two years of not seeing them, you know, those kind of go by the wayside, you know, not being in that classroom for people that thrive with human contact, not really having that contact, she didn't want to go to college. And she's at a point where I feel like she's really just trying to find herself and find where she needs to be. And part of me is like, well, you should go to college. But then I'm like, I mean, I came out with an RN degree, but I got some friends that came out with some degrees and they not really doing what their degree says. I got something that's never been in the field of that degree. I don't know if I should push college. Then you're like, well, maybe do a trade or she doesn't necessarily want to do real estate. You know, so it's kind of one of those things where I think they kind of get to this crossroad and you kind of just have to lay back, sit back and be supportive because you don't even necessarily know which direction to tell them to go. You have to hope that you put enough in them that they take those jewels and they figure it out. I mean, luckily she's young. No, she's only 19. She still has time. It's a harder road, I think, for these kids. When I look at the people doing their black sit and they exodus, it seems like 50% of them are teachers. So who the hell is teaching our kids? Exactly. (laughs) Teachers and lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) Who's left to teach the children if all of y'all are leaving because y'all are burnt out? I mean, it just highlights the systemic failures. We talk about the big exodus, Black talent at all levels. You look at, like you said, the field of people that are leaving, what that does to society. It should shake things up and say, hey, you know what? If we keep going on this trajectory, this is what we have to look forward to as a society. Like there's going to be really big problems. The fissure will only get bigger. I think for your daughter, I know very similar to to my son in that he took a few years off between deciding to go back to school eventually. I was okay with that because each child is different and recognizing that, you know, school still be there and some kids need that break. 
especially for those that have been in the school system during the pandemic. You know, your daughter had the disruption towards the tail end, 11th and 12th. My daughter had it in the beginning. And so she's only been around these students like the past year and a half. And so, you know, I think wherever your child fits in on that spectrum, we have to recognize that it isn't as easy as saying, okay, the world's back open again. Everybody go about your business and not addressing the real, very real things that happen. You know, I think if we walk away from these two and a half years and take nothing from that, then it is a loss, then it is a missed opportunity. So I think for people who are listening to this episode and who are thinking about taking stock of their life and saying, okay, what are the things that are working? What are the things that aren't working? What are the things that I want to pursue so that I don't have at the end of whatever time I have and say, oh, wow, there was a bunch of missed opportunities. I think that's the biggest lesson in this conversation. I think the pandemic was a blessing and a curse. As somebody that was working during the pandemic, I refused to go out. They would try to send me out. And I, anybody that knows me, I've always been one of those people. My kids come before everybody else. Y'all take y'all job, do whatever you want with it. But I'm not sacrificing my kids' lives because I learned very early on after I had a job where one of my co-workers died, it was business as usual. She was the hardest working individual there. They wouldn't even look my way to do half the stuff she was doing. She was working seven days a week, would get up in the middle of the night when she didn't have to. She wasn't on call. When we did on call, we didn't even do it for her facilities because she was always there. And when she passed away, and I work for hospice, so keep that in mind. She passed away. It was business as usual. They sent the same spray that they send for every other client that we have. They didn't go to the funeral. And I was like, this woman worked her behind off. And that was in my early 20s. That was one of my first jobs. And I took that with me everywhere I went. So when COVID hit and they said, well, you know, we need we're going to start going back. Oh, I'm not going back out. Whatever y'all want to do, y'all do. (laughs) At the end of the day, I'll figure out a way to make, make a dollar. I'm not going back out. Leading up to that, it was so stressful. As someone that was an ICU nurse, I was doing triage. However, I could tell that these people were on the verge of death. And at this point, we hadn't found a way to stabilize COVID. So I would be on the phone and I'm like, you have got to get into the ER. You need to be intubated. You know, I couldn't tell them that, but I knew that in the stress, the anxiety, the depression that came upon me, it was hard for me to be there for my children because I needed to figure out my own mental health. So I actually went on leave. I needed to make sure that I could put myself back together. And you would think after being in the ICU, I would be used to it. But that was one of the reasons why I left. It was too much for me. You know, I think I'm very empathetic. It was just too much for me. So to hear these people, children, adults, you know, older people, and all they were going through all of this, it was a lot. So it was, I think for some of us as adults, it was hard to be there for our kids because we were still trying to figure ourselves out. And I feel like, you know, when you say those missed opportunities, I feel like there were times where I would try to talk to my daughter, but I didn't even know what to say. Like, we didn't know if we were going to live or die. The best we could do was these TikTok video dances, have some fun, you know, and keep it moving. Like, that's all I, that's, that's 
as a parent, that was all I had control over. I think for many of us, that was the closest that a lot of people probably came to their own mortality because there was so much uncertainty. Now that we're in this like new phase, the biggest thing is looking for the lesson in whatever it was for you at that time. You know, whether it was, hey, maybe I need to change jobs. I need to change countries. I need to invest more, whatever that is. That's why conversations like these are so important. It ignites the spark in you. And I always say it's one thing to be inspired. It's another thing to take inspired action. So Charisma, as we start to close, where can people find you? I have a website, charisma-cares.com. On that website, um, I have a freebie for your rental, you know, the five top resources for that. I have the syndications course on there. I do offer classes. I have a real estate boot camp coming up in um, January. I'll do another how to find your first tenant masterclass in January. We'll see how this Airbnb goes. I'll tell y'all. I may or may not be telling y'all how to invest in Mexico, or I may just be telling y'all don't do that. Don't do that, y'all. Um, and then I also do coaching, single moms, sometimes just women that feel like they connect with me, and also special needs and disabilities, people that want to move forward. I'm also on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, Charisma Cares, or Charisma Cares Travels the World. And in my YouTube, I'm kind of open and raw. Like I tell you the good, I tell you the bad, I tell you the ugly, I tell you the stuff that other people don't want you to know. Like I tell you how I crossed the Panama border with a wheelchair and some luggage. (laughs) I tell you my failures and why you shouldn't get this or why you shouldn't do that. And then I do a live on Tuesday nights around 8.30 where we just talk about different things. I show you our life traveling, but I do like to be open with it because um, a lot of times we show all of the rosy things, but we don't show the realism because it sounds great, but there have been some, ooh, it's just been some challenges. However, in none of my journeys have I felt like I should have stayed in the States. I've been led to certain places to do certain things. And, you know, sometimes you're just led in certain places, certain paths put in the way of certain people for a reason. Absolutely. And I'm glad that as the journey has been unfolding for you, it has connected us in this beautiful way. So I'll make sure that I will link all of your details in the show notes for this episode. So Charisma, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you on the Blacks of Global podcast. I look forward to chatting with you and continuing to watch your journey unfold. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Blacksit Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blacksitglobal.com. It's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com resources. That's blacksitglobal.com resources.